Would you join me in Psalm 46, if you're not there already? Psalm 46. It's an incredible psalm. The Lord's used it tremendously in my life, especially even this past week studying it. As I was studying psalm, this psalm uh, this week, uh, one of the more precious memories in our young family came to mind studying Psalm 46. And this memory happened on a day that you are likely to remember also if you were living here in Richmond several years ago. Now, unlike the, the great people of Ricks, Kansas that we heard about last week, who uh, tornadoes are a normal occurrence to them, on September 17th, 2018, through many of us East Coast folk, if that describes you, quite off guard. If you recall, nine tornadoes touched down in the metro Richmond area that afternoon. And being ignorant and, if I'd be honest, more likely arrogant, I decided to weather the storm that afternoon by doing some yard work. It was, uh, seemed to me like the perfect weather to dig those trenches that I had been putting off for a while. So I just couldn't resist. I went outside, got my shovel, started digging these trenches in the yard for the, these downspouts I wanted to put in. And well, in the midst of my uh, digging, I started hearing a rumbling noise. And that noise got louder. And then it got even louder. And interestingly, next... I looked up, and I saw that the sky was full of leaves. It was kind of unusual. The noise grew louder and louder until I finally realized, that's a tornado. <laughs> I panicked. Yes, a, a tornado was less than a mile away from my house, plowing down Hull Street, causing great damage, and, and some here were even closer to it than that. Now, what did I do? Well, I, I ran into the house. You know, Amy, get the kids. We, we huddled together. At this point, everyone was looking at me. You know, this was my moment to lead the family, to say something incredibly courageous. And what did I do? I had us together, and I, I looked at them. I said, guys, I have no idea what to do. <laughs> I, have, I have no clue what to do right now. Well, then, then came the moment. Just as those words came out of my mouth, I heard a voice, not from heaven, not from the sky, but from about three feet below me. A voice spoke up and said, Daddy, we should pray. <laughs> I was like, right, you took the words right out of my mouth. Thank you. <laughs> I was going to say that. Uh, this was a special moment. For us, and thankfully, yes, the Lord did spare us, and sadly, that wasn't true for all that afternoon. But what struck me most about that moment was the fruit of our time of prayer. Truly, before the storm physically passed, it was as if in our soul the storm had already moved by. Our, our little prayer huddle brought scriptures to mind, Psalm 46 being one, that gave peace and comfort to our souls in that moment. Now, did prayer make us untouchable? No. Did that mean we could not be hurt? No, at least not in this life. But looking to God in trouble brought a peace 
that surpasses all understanding, just as Philippians 4, verse 7 says it will. I may not have known what to do, but our security in Christ, knowing God's sovereign control, these truths quieted our soul in a way that truly I hope I would never forget. Now this morning, what about you? In, In confusion and in crisis, do you run to the Lord? When your life gets real, how relevant is God to you? In difficult days, does God become another name on your list of disappointments of those who let you down? Or does he become your complete dependence? This is where Psalm 46 is taking us this morning. It is to show us that our God is a sure and steady anchor for the soul. This psalm, Psalm 46, cultivates in God's people a fear-defying faith, a rock-solid confidence that the Lord is available in any calamity. Now, there is a a background to this psalm, and while not specifically mentioned in the the, uh, subscription below the psalm title, that is inspired, by the way, to the choir master, the sons of Korah, According to Alamoth, a song. This psalm is a song. But while not specifically mentioned, many see, and I'm inclined to agree, that Psalm 46 was written to celebrate God's deliverance of Jerusalem from an, from an Assyrian invasion. Now, this account is recorded, in fact, three times in the Old Testament. So it is a, it is a paradigm. It is a, a massive account and event in Judah's history, both in or three times in 2 Kings 18 and 19 and 2 Chronicles 32 and Isaiah 36 and 37, this account of the Assyrian invasion is recorded. Now, during this invasion, the Assyrian commander, the, the guy's name is Sennacherib, he comes and he taunts God. He, he laughs that people would trust in Yahweh. Why are you trusting in this Yahweh? None of the other nations' gods helped them when we destroyed them. Who is this Yahweh? He, he says, literally, he says in Isaiah 36, On what do you rest this trust of yours? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? You see, the Assyrians had Jerusalem under a complete siege. There was an army of 185,000 soldiers surrounding the city, a complete blockade. The situation, from a human perspective, seemed absolutely hopeless. And yet through Isaiah's encouragement, King Hezekiah prayed. He sought the Lord to do what man could not do. And by morning, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers lay dead. And Psalm 46 sung to a God who does and can do that. And so we ought to take courage this morning as God's people What we need to understand is that the God of Psalm 46, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so this psalm should boldly march you forward, but it points us and it moves us to a deeper trust in the Lord. And so our main point this morning is to defy fear through deepening faith by praying and preaching God's greatness and grace to your soul. You need to preach truth to your soul. 
The way to defy fear is through a deeper faith. And we're going to see that this morning. Three realities when God is your refuge. And the first is that God's protection quiets your fear. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. I'll read them. We read, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, selah, which means pause, break, meditate. Think about this. There's a reason that Martin Luther loved this psalm. You see, Psalm 46 has a defiant tone about it. It is a bold psalm. And if you know anything about Martin Luther, you know that he certainly did not lack boldness. In 1527, himself facing ill health and a spreading bubonic plague around Europe and into even his own city in Germany, many were advising Luther to flee, to run for his life. You're too valuable. We need you too much. Run. Find safety. Well, Luther, instead, in the midst of that crisis, he turned his home into a hospital. It was during that crisis that Luther would write his most famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is based on Psalm 46. Now, why? Why does the Christian have courage when the world is falling apart? Well, look at verse 1. Let's start reading in verse 1. We read God. God. And that's all we're going to read. God is our refuge and strength. Understand that this word is significant. We're not going to go word by word through the whole psalm, by the way. So it's okay. Take a deep breath. But but this this is significant. We can't pass this, this title. In Hebrew, God here is Elohim. And this word truly is a magnificent title. El, it means might or power. And so God is the the almighty one. He is the sovereign one. He is the entirely unrivaled, existing in a class by himself, God. And yet, notice, the word is not El, but Elohim. And interestingly, the, the word Elohim is not singular, but it's plural. Now, of course, that's not to say that God is multiple gods. There is only one God. And yet this title as a plural, as it's always written, is given to intensify God's name. This God simply cannot be limited in any way. Theologians call the the title Elohim a plural of majesty. One writes that being plural implies that all the fullness of deity is concentrated in this one God. This God, this this star-breathing, life-giving, all-wise, omniscient, omnipotent God, He is our refuge and strength. He is our walled city. He is our hiding place. He is our unconquerable fortress. What can touch you when you're in Him? Now let's look at all of verse 1. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, something important is implied by verse 1, and we can't miss this. Embrace yourself. 
if God is a very present help in trouble, then you should expect to have what? Trouble. Why would we need a refuge? And why would we need a refuge, one who is God at that, if there were no looming threats on the horizon? Why would it matter that God be a very present help, except that there is trouble in the forecast? And there is. Paul said in Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, too, said, in this world, you will have trouble. But he added, take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16.33. You see, the Bible presents life as it actually is, which is hard. (laughs) It's not easy. We experience times of gain and then loss. Times of joy and then sorrow. Times of health and then sickness. Life and then death. And in our world, understand, you can hardly blame the world. Our world so desperately tries to avoid these unpleasant topics and understand it must avoid them because it simply has no answers for them. Solve the problem that 10 out of 10 people die. You can't. And so our world avoids and distracts and ignores all of these issues for it. It has no answer, but not God. In his son, God has answered our greatest fear, even the fear of death. As Christ rose from the grave, death itself was defeated. Those flaming darts of Satan were extinguished for all who trust in Jesus Christ. You are promised eternal life. And so understand whether it's overthrowing armies or whether it's conquering the grave, God has proven his power to help those who look to him by faith. And now notice also in verse 1, see this. God is a very present help in trouble. The psalmist doesn't say that God is a help one day. God might come, come through one day. But that God is a refuge now, a present help. He's studying this psalm this week. It actually made me wonder something. Why do people find prosperity preachers so encouraging? You ever think about that? A guy was buying something from me off Marketplace not too long ago, and he told me, he said, he said, quote, you know, I, I like to get my spiritual pick-me-up listening to Joel, you know who, on the radio. Now, I have, whatever I said probably wasn't all that helpful in response, but maybe I'll get another shot. But looking at verse 1, I'm thinking, I'm studying this, this psalm this week, and I'm thinking about what that guy said, and I'm thinking, really? You find that guy's message encouraging? I mean, think about this. What is so encouraging about being told, yes is coming? Your next season will prosper. Your big break, it's on the way. It's around the corner. You say, okay, well, I I know he's making it all up, but how is that hopeless? Doesn't that sound at least a little encouraging? Let me tell you why it's hopeless. Because if God can only help me tomorrow, 
If God can only help me next time, in the next season, around the bend, well then who is there to help me today? Who is there to help me right now? Sure, give empty promises about tomorrow. Do that all you want. But people don't need help tomorrow. Where do I run right now? Who can I go to in this moment for refuge? Can you see how incredibly weak and discouraging that message is? Well, again, praise Christ. That's not who our God is. God, in all his saving might, he is ready, he is available now in the midst of trouble to comfort you, to calm your fears, even to forgive your sin. And how? Not by making empty, temporary promises of blessings, but by the assurance of an eternal, unshakable salvation in Jesus Christ. And so whether your, whether your yes ever comes, whatever that might be, The Christian is always saying, it is well with my soul. I'm hidden in Christ. And so look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, therefore, which means in light of this, because of this, therefore we will not fear. We will not give in to hopeless despair. We will not live saying things like, I'm doomed, the sky is falling, everything out of control, nothing can help me. No, true faith defies that kind of fear. And look at verse 2 and 3. I think what is most surprising here is that the psalmist has in view not just a, a small little fear, but he has in fact in view the worst case scenario. Look at verses 2 and 3. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Well, what the psalmist is saying, I will not fear, is the most devastating scenario you could ever imagine. This isn't like, I won't fear if my package shows up two days later than I expected. This is like the world is falling apart. I mean, normally our source of stability, just humanly speaking, is the ground. We like it when the ground doesn't move. And yet in this psalm, he's saying the entire world is thrown into chaos. There are cataclysmic earthquakes shaking the earth into the sea. The world is literally coming undone. You, you can't get a worse picture than Psalm 46, verses 2 and 3. And yet again, God's people, even they're not promised in these verses even that the catastrophe won't hit them. Likely it would. But for God's people, confidence remains. And why does it remain? It's because our hope does not rest in the stability of the ground. It doesn't rest in our job or the economy or any such thing. The Christian's confidence rests not in knowing our future, but in knowing our God. One author wrote, I thought this was very helpful. They wrote, when we become nervous or anxious, we need theology not astrology. 
We need to be reminded constantly that though the earth gives way, though nations rage, though your health may fail, though finances fluctuate, though the culture rejects us, our God, he is in the heavens and nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so how have you been answering fear? I doubt that you have been secretly tuning in to prosperity preachers on the radio, right? Hopefully not. But what do you tune into to answer fear? Do you rest in more knowledge? I'm going to learn everything there is to know about fill in the blank, and then I'm going to have peace about it. That doesn't always lead to peace, does it? You know, every time I have a sniffle and I go on WebMD, it basically tells me I'm going to die. <laughs> so more knowledge isn't always the answer to finding peace. It's not always comforting or even true. Some might answer fear with how successful they are, how much money they have, how smart they are. You know, I have a recession-proof portfolio. Nothing is going to take that away from me. And then everything crashes anyway. Others, though, they try to push away fear. You know the person who says, you know, I'm not afraid of nothing. Really? You're not afraid of, you're not afraid of anything? Yes, you are. You've just crammed your life so full of work so full of hobbies, so full of mindless entertainment. The reason you don't think there's anything to fear is because you just don't think. You haven't even allowed yourself any space to think about life and what actually matters and what's going on in the world and where you're heading or anything like that. But understand, ultimately, all those responses are insufficient. To answer fear, first, you need to, as Martin Lloyd said, Stop listening to yourself. I love what he said. He said, quote, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life, follow this, is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Now, this isn't some weird, like, you know, go in a corner and start talking to yourself, you know, kind of thing. What, what he's saying is this. He's saying that the worst preacher you know is your sinful flesh. It preaches lies. It preaches fear. It preaches dread. It preaches worry. And those things are the opposite of faith. And to fight this, Lloyd-Jones is saying you need to preach back. What's the answer to bad preaching? Better preaching. Preach back. Preach the greatness and grace of God to yourself. Take Psalm 42, verse 5, for example. The psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And now here comes the preaching. He says, Hope in God. He's talking to himself. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I want you to turn to... Isaiah 37 with me, just briefly, Isaiah 37. I want you to see what it means to pray the greatness of God. This prayer happens in the context of this psalm. 
Isaiah 37, starting in verse 14, the, the, the brief background to this prayer is that Hezekiah received a letter from Assyria which basically said, hey, we're coming. <laughs> we're coming after you. Prayer is how Hezekiah responded. Notice the theology driving this prayer. Isaiah 37, 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, listen to this, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Beloved, that is a fear-defying prayer. We too have promises and truths that we must preach to ourselves. Like Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.18, he said, God will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And even in Romans 8.31, he said, for if God be for us, who can be against us? The second reality when God is your refuge is in verses 4 through 7, that God's presence supplies your hope. Let's read verses 4 through 7. It says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning comes. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. You see, having been promised ultimate protection, these verses shift from the, that utter calamity of verses 2 and 3 to this calming hope. Okay, why do God's people have hope? Well, the reason is because this God is present with his people. Remember Jesus' final words to his disciples. What did he say? He said, and behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. You don't need to turn there, but in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, I just love this. When Jesus called his disciples, this is what we read, Mark 3, 14. It says, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. You see, what Jesus wanted his disciples to do before they did anything for him, was to be with him. <laughs> he didn't need to send them out to preach. He needed them to be with him. They needed him with them. He needed them to know him. He, he needed his disciples to understand that I didn't call you because of your skill. I didn't call you because of your strength. I called you for me. 
And the only way you're going to get through is if you have me, if you rely on me. I am your supply. And so look at verse 4 in Psalm 46. It says that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Having described the earth as roaring and foaming, the psalm now turns in contrast to this peaceful, river-like supply of hope. Now remember the context. The Assyrians have surrounded Jerusalem. And what does a a walled-in city need more than anything else to survive a siege? Well, they need water. (laughs) They need a lot of water. You see, if water existed inside a city's walls, then that's great. But if there was no water in the city, that was, that was trouble. In fact, the first thing an invading army would do would be to divert any water supply away from the city. Try to force surrender. Well, for Jerusalem, water was especially problematic. You see, Jerusalem, it has no river going through it. It sits on a hill, and its main water supply in this day was several springs that actually, it says specifically in the text, laid outside of the city wall. So the little water they had, they couldn't even get to it. Well, well, Hezekiah, and this is just amazing, Hezekiah, he knew this would be an issue, And so when he learned that Assyria was bent on invasion, his first action, in fact, was to stop up those springs outside the city. And then he incredibly built this 1,749-foot underground tunnel. It channeled the water actually into the city. This thing is amazing. It's described in 2 Kings 20 and 2 Chronicles 32. This is referred to as Hezekiah's Tunnel. You can actually go tour this tunnel today. They're open from 8 to 5. I looked it up. You just have to get over there somehow. You can see this thing. It is an architectural and engineering marvel. At some points, this tunnel, it goes 98 feet below the city, and, and somehow the two sides met each other. And yet as fascinating as this tunnel is and was, and maybe it's alluded to in verse 4, Hezekiah's tunnel certainly isn't a mighty river. It certainly was not the ultimate means of deliverance. And verse 5 clarifies, that refreshing supply, the river, in fact, is God himself. Verse 5 says, God is in the midst of her, her being the city. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. You see, just as a river continually flows, so God himself is the constant and continual supply of hope for his people. Look at the end of verse 5. Verse 5 ends by saying, God will help her when morning comes. Well, let me ask you a question. How often does morning come? Every day. Every day morning comes. What this means is that God's supply of grace and hope is a constant, daily, refreshing supply. You you simply will not exhaust God. There's always more to marvel at with this God. With the Lord, there's never that, you know what I'm talking about, there's never that disappointing moment where it's like, 
well, you know, that was good, but it's done now. The series is over. The book is finished. The movie's ended. I guess we'll just have to go find something else to do. There's no need to, to ration out your intake of God. Like, you know, we're gonna, we'll watch one episode a week, and we'll spread this out over three months. We won't binge watch. We'll, we'll enjoy this over time, and, and then, we'll, you know, we'll have something to do. No, you, you, listen, you could spend the rest of your life doing nothing but studying the glories of this God, and you would never exhaust him and never even scratch the surface. And so the, the infinite supply we need, whether you need hope in a trial, whether you need courage to share the gospel, whether you need confidence to face some fear, provision of need, forgiveness of sin, whether you need reconciliation in a relationship that is ruined, all of this grace, it flows from the Lord. You pursue God, and when you have God, these things will flow. Help will come. You see, from Eden to, to Christ to the New Jerusalem, the scriptures always picture rivers as a sign of life. It was Jesus himself in John 7. He stood up and cried out. He said, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then it says, now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him, that is, people like you and me, were to receive. You see, in, in the new covenant, we have it so good. You don't have to go to a, a special city. You don't have to go wear a certain kind of clothes or be near a special place to, to have God and to have fellowship with God. By his spirit, God is always with you. And so I just ask, are, are you taking advantage of this privilege? Are you taking advantage of this privilege? You know, as a, as a relatively goal-oriented person, I so often need to remember that there is nothing more practical than to sit at the feet of Jesus Christ. Opening your Bible to, to see God's refreshing streams, that itself is an act of faith, and we should not dismiss that or discount that. You may see on your to-do list or your schedule, there's a, there's a hundred things that need to be done. How could 20 minutes in the Word and in prayer, how could that possibly help with anything? Do you, have you ever had that thought before? You see, we need to understand that, that no, prayer is not going to clean the dishes, but it will change me. It will bring joy. You will find, as you come to him, when morning comes, you will find this daily supply of grace transforming you, equipping you, even causing things perhaps like doing the dishes to become worship. And see, verses 6 and 7, God reminds us of his power. Will this hope last? How can we trust it? Well, because of God's power. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. That's the power of this God. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. 
You see, one word from God and raging nations just melt. This is your God. He is a God. He always is ready for battle. He never abandons his post. Psalm 121 verse 4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He he will not fail you. But let me ask you, do any of these truths, you know, God is with you, God will help you, God is, is for you. Do, 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 do any of these truths ever feel a bit like what people might call, you know, pie in the sky? A little superficial, you know, like, okay, I hear you, but really? Well, Psalm 46 is here to say, no, really, really. Understand that there are saints in this church who are going through tremendous challenges right now, who are the most joyful people you will ever meet. One of my grandfathers, near death, he was lying on a hospital bed. I came to, to visit him. I came to comfort him. And do you know what he spent the whole time doing? He spent the whole time telling me how good Jesus has been to him. In fact, he took it a step further. He even started rebuking me about some things he noticed in my life that needed to change. And I'm like, dude, wait, I came here to comfort you and to be here for you. And now I'm getting rebuked and and I'm just thinking in my mind, how are you not thinking about yourself right now? You're sitting here thinking about Christ and thinking about my good and and others' good. How are you not thinking about yourself and the reason is because Jesus? One brother said to me the other night, he said, quote, the biggest blessings in my life have been in the hospital when I was about to die. I was like, oh, really? I, I think he even was telling the truth. That is the reality, brothers and sisters, of God's presence being with you, supplying in otherworldly hope. Now third, God's preeminence captures your worship. This is how the psalm ends. Verses 8 through 11, let's read. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. This psalm ends with a summons. It's not, it's not content to just leave you sitting there wondering what to do. This psalm ends with a summons. There are two commands in Psalm 46, and they're both, uh, one is in verse 8 and the other in verse 10. Come behold, verse 8, and be still, verse 10. And I want you to see that both the Christian, the believer, and the unbeliever alike are called by this God to worship him. Verse 8, it says, come, behold the works of the Lord. Zoom out. See what God has done. Take a look at the nations like Assyria, whom God raised up, and then he tore them to pieces. What does this tell you about God? It tells you that God has ruled all of history. As many people have cleverly said, history is his story. 
We just showed up. We just mouth off and we act like we know something and then we're gone. Isaiah 40 rather speaks of God's preeminence. That this God, he is unrivaled. He is a spear shattering great God. Isaiah 40, 15 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Verse 17 says, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And so the conclusion is, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? And we said it earlier, but there is nothing that you and I need more in the midst of, of our lives than to behold God. We need, remember, we need theology, not astrology. We need to study God. We need to learn who this God is. We need to see him in his greatness and his glory. Let him take our faith deeper to trust in him. One, one resource that has been a, a recent help to me is this book uh, by an author named Matthew Barrett, and it's titled None Greater, None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God, showing you well, who is this God. It goes through many of his, his attributes, his, his aseity and uh, simplicity, which interestingly isn't that simple. But, but what, what I love about this book is that he, he writes it for normal people. If you consider yourself a normal person, this book is for you. He uses baseball analogies and, and all kinds of things in there to, to help you see and understand these depths, these riches, to begin scratching the surface of who this God is. It's very helpful. Matthew Barrett, none greater. But let's look at the second command in verse 10. Verse 10, a familiar verse. It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. See, this verse calls the listener to stop. Settle down. Call a timeout. Be still. And this is functioning here in two ways. Two ways. First, it's comfort. If you're comforted by this verse because you're a believer in Christ, if you've printed this verse out and put it, you know, in your Pinterest-worthy kitchen and, and have it hanging there, like, praise God. This is what it's supposed to do. For, for God's people, in light of his protection and his presence, we have nothing to do but be still. Remember Moses speaking to Israel on the edge of the Red Sea? He said, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. This verse for the believer is a call to rest in the Lord. And I love how one pastor put it. He said, quote, do you gaze, follow this. He said, do you gaze at your circumstances, but only glance at Are you gazing at circumstances, fixated on them? Are you gazing at the news? Are you gazing at social media, gazing at your problems, but then only glancing at the Lord? If that is so, then it would be no wonder why anxiety would come, why we would feel unsettled in times of fear. Your heart needs truth. 
My heart needs truth. We need to know that he is God. He has it. He has it in control. Understand, it may look different than you expected, but everything is falling into place. The believer can rest there. But second, this may surprise you, but this verse, verse 10, is a warning. It is a warning. To, to the nations who are warring against God, to you this morning, if you are resisting and rejecting God, this verse, this verse is not a call for you to go find a rocking chair somewhere and ruminate on your spiritual beliefs. This verse is a call for you to repent. Perhaps more literally, be still could be translated, cease striving. Cease striving, cease working against this God. You see, the nations, they were scheming and plotting, but as Psalm 2 says, it is all in vain. A day is coming when Jesus Christ himself will return to rule this earth. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel sees a vision of this. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and listen, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And what Daniel is seeing is this is taking place on this earth. It's unmistakable. There is a day coming when Jesus Christ will personally return to set up a literal, physical, multinational, Revelation 20 adds, millennial kingdom on this planet. This is going to happen. The Bible talks about this over and over and over again. Verse 10, God doesn't say, I might be exalted over the nations and I might be exalted in the earth. He says, no, I will be. I will be exalted in the earth. And so in light of God's power and plan to rule this earth, how should you respond? Well, the answer is simple. It's to repent. It's to cease working against this God. There is no refuge if you run. You need to understand this morning that if you are outside of Christ, God has put you on notice. As one pastor wrote, you will either come in faith now to the Lord Jesus Christ and find him to be a mighty fortress, or you will remain in sin and find him to be a consuming fire. In either case, he will be glorified. Now, perhaps you wonder, well, well, who can repent? I've heard this message before, and I didn't repent last time. Is it too late? Am I too far gone? Is there, is there any hope for me? Well, look at verse 11. Psalm 46, 11, it answers that question. This repeated refrain, verse 7, verse 11, it says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You say, where's the answer? Well, listen, is anyone too wayward for God's forgiveness? Well, the words, the God of Jacob, is your answer. Jacob, the God who saved a lying, cheating, 
manipulating little rascal like Jacob. Jacob, a man who never led an army, never won a battle. Jacob, a man who who strived with God. He was saved by God. Because this is a God who saves sinners. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. And so listen this morning. Jesus Christ laid down his life on the cross as a substitute for sinners. The, The wrath that sinners like you and Jacob and I deserved, Jesus endured. It was poured out on him and it opened wide the door of mercy for all who would come, for all who would repent and put their faith and trust in him. And so I urge you this morning, Maybe you've heard this message a thousand times. Or maybe it just feels like you've heard it a thousand times. But regardless of how many times you have heard the good news, I urge you today to make today the last day you've heard it without believing it. Come to Christ. Make Christ your refuge. Make his cross your shelter, your hiding place. Understand that if a murdering Pharisee like Paul can be saved, then certainly Christ will have you too. Church, might we see this morning in this incredible psalm, Psalm 46, what does it tell us? It tells us that we do not have a fear-denying faith. But we do have a fear-defying faith. Trouble will come, but you have a mighty fortress, a God who is with you. It's said of Luther as we prepare to sing his hymn. It's said of Luther that when faced with opposition, he would often turn to his friend, Philip Melanchthon, and he would say to him these words. He'd say, Philip, let us read the 46th Psalm. And let the devil do his best. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that you are our refuge and strength. You are, Lord Jesus, an anchor for the soul. The one that we can run to and find safety and stillness in the midst of the storm. Oh God, would you cause these people here this morning to look to Christ and to keep looking and to keep praying and to keep trusting and keep being in awe of your greatness and your grace. Lord, may we as your people rest in you. We pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.